If you are at home, uh, make sure you've got a, a Bible. Go grab your Bible. And if you're here and you have your Bible with you, um, that will be helpful as we work through this text. I uh, have not been here for, I think, about 13, 14 months. I was here for Deacon Susan's ordination in Advent 2019, which I think we can all agree feels like it was forever ago. It was a pandemic ago. So I'm really happy to be back here. Um, honestly, it would take a lot to keep me from coming down to be with you all. I have been anticipating this. Uh, Catherine is here with me, which is uh, a special joy uh, for us to be able to come down together and to, to be here together. Um, I just love this church so much. Uh, you matter so much to Catherine and me and to our diocese, uh, one of our uh, founding churches. You were started when the diocese started. It's a great intertwining of our our story together, and it's something that I hold dearly, um, very much. Uh, just if you haven't met me, I'm, I get the joy of being the bishop of the Upper Midwest Diocese. I'm based at our cathedral church or our mother church, which is Church of the Resurrection, um, out of which many churches, thanks be to God, have implanted, including Emmanuel. So uh, I get to visit one of our, our daughters um, as well. You're also kind of a sister. I don't know how that works. Just don't think too much about it. Just let it be. Um, but it's such a joy to be able to be a part of that. I am also the dad of six kids, um, ages 23 to on Tuesday, uh, number six turns 10 years old. So 23 to 10 is the, uh, the Ruck family span, and that's a big part of Catherine's and my life also. One of the joys of being a bishop in our tradition, one of the bold claims that we make as followers of Jesus in the Anglican way is that bishops and the priests that surround them are called to extend the ministry of the apostles. And one thing that that means is teaching God's word. So Father Aaron, thank you for the privilege of inviting me to come and teach God's word, which is one of the greatest joys in my life. So let's, let's do that together. So um, you can open your Bibles to the um, gospel lesson just read so beautifully by Deacon Susan. Um, we're going to be in John chapter 3. Uh, for those of you that are very particular about um, making sure that the Lessons that are given us um, in the lectionary and Anglicanism were given lessons for preaching. Forgive me, we're going off-road a little bit, um, uh, because this is a, 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 a teaching that I've been giving around the diocese. I'll say a little bit more as to why. Um, so we are going to um, off-road a little bit in John chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. So it may not be the appointed lesson, but it's the Bible. All right? So we're going to be okay. All right. Um, so... Absolutely remarkable film that I think Catherine and I saw together 15 years ago plus. Some of you may have seen it. I would recommend it with the caveats to do your own research, and particularly if you've got younger folks involved with it, not it's appropriate for them. But the name of the film is Life is Beautiful, and it's a parable. It's, it's a story told about a Jewish father and son uh, who are sent to a Nazi concentration camp during the World War II era. And as they get there, the father, who's a highly inventive personality, decides that to get his son through this harrowing experience, he will create a narrative. And he tells him, this camp is actually a complicated game. And in this game, every task I give you, if you do it right away, and just as I ask you to do it, you will get a point. And if you get a 1,000 points... In a moment of great irony, he points to a German Panzer tank. You could win that tank. Son's enthralled. 
does everything his dad tells him to do in this genius invention, this incredible narrative. And at the end of the film, without spoiling it for you, the son says, this is the gift my father gave me. And that, that's, that film captures the power of narrative. The need we have for defining narrative in our lives. Indeed, this narrative, which was an invention, actually contrived and not absolutely accurate, had incredible power. How much more from our infinitely inventive Father in heaven who has given us the gospel narrative? Well, that narrative, as it saved a life in this film, will save our lives will set our lives upon a profound purpose if we can make that decision to live that narrative above every other narrative that is competing. Indeed, narratives come in all kinds of sizes, all kinds of shapes. There are what are called meta-narratives or, or the big grand narratives. The story of America is a meta-narrative. It's also a narrative right now that's in great conflict who gets to tell the story of America? What is the American story? There's, there's narratives in conflict around that. There's a more circumspect narrative, the narrative that you'll find between the covers of a book or between the metrical boundaries of a poem. They're the media narratives, right? It's that narrative where you're convinced that your news feed is the most accurate, and it's the most connected to what's really happening. And everyone else's news feed is meh. And there are profound competing news feed narratives now. Unimaginable to those of us who are kind of post-35 that there'd be such competing news narratives about what's happening. And those narratives are in massive and very serious and consequential competition in our day. But there's even a more powerful narrative than that. And that's your narrative. Your personal narrative. Here's what I mean by that. What is the story that you tell yourself about yourself? What's the story that comes up in your mind when you try to be quiet and pray? What's the story that maybe keeps you up at night that runs in your thinking? Maybe you're not aware that you're telling yourself a story all the time, but I would argue and posit that you are. We all need a narrative to make sense of our lives. What narrative is helping you make sense of your life? And I can promise you that there's a battle of the narratives. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 3, one of the ways that I would help us to explain this passage of Scripture is a battle of the narratives. Here you have John's, and by, when I say John, primarily I'm talking about John the baptizer, not the apostle John who penned this gospel narrative. You have John the baptizer who has a narrative about the coming Messiah, about the coming of Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah that's been waited for. He has a narrative about this. But John's followers, and John has a school. He has what we call a rabbinical school. John's followers 
actually have a competing narrative with their rabbi. And we watch in this story this amazing clash of narratives that portrays for us the way in which we, were, we exist in a clash of narratives all the time. And one of the greatest ways to enter into the fruit of the spirit of peace in your lives and how desperately we need peace in our day, internalized peace in the Holy Spirit, is to get clear about your narrative. And one of the things that causes anxiety and agitation right now is that there's so many competing narratives and we're caught in the vice grip of them. That's exactly where the enemy of our souls wants us. But I'm telling you, you can get free from that by getting clear about what narrative do we ultimately believe in. Recognize there's a competition for your narrative in the midst of a clash, getting clear. So I want to start as we look at the outline of the scriptures and look especially, you guys, in your Bibles at verses 25 to 30. Know your narrative, verses 25 to 26. Know his narrative, verses 27 to 30. And the reason I'm teaching this throughout our diocese right now is that I think this is one of the greatest needs we have um, as American followers of Jesus, is being clear about this amidst so many narratives. Okay. Verse 25. Get that page over here. A discussion arises between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And out of this conversation, they're now agitated, and they come to John, and they say, Rabbi, teacher, he who was with you across the Jordan, Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Okay, so we begin with a narrative, which is, at its heart, a kind of narrative of competition. We don't know what the discussion was. It would be intriguing to know more of what was happening here. But we can, I think, can safely assume that this Jew is raising questions around the rites of purification based on Mosaic law, maybe based on the pharisaical sort of extrapolation on Mosaic law. Like, how do you think about purification? It could have been one of those very enveloped, very developed uh, sort of theological conversations. And it's possible he's challenging them around their teacher's view of purification, or at least how Jesus, the, the, the rabbi, is teaching on purification and how John is. And there's some kind of competition that comes out of this so that they're agitated. That we know for sure from the text. And they're coming to John and they're saying, oh my goodness, ha, ah, we just have discovered we're losing market share. It's, it's, it's falling out of our fingers. We, I mean, we thought we were Starbucks and had a corner on it, but out of the blue came Dunkin'. Really? Like a 1970s donut shop? Right? And McDonald's is competing for our market share. What are we going to do? We thought we were Starbucks. We thought we were like the first one on the scene. All are going to him. That's what they say. Because their narrative is a win-lose narrative, which is a profoundly influential narrative in the American soul. There are winners and there are losers. It's a competitive narrative. Now, this is not to say that competition isn't in part healthy and part of actually good interpersonal dynamics wherein people can grow through proper competition. This isn't categorical, what I'm saying. I'm talking about the driving narrative of one's life. Where, am I winning right now or am I losing? It's amazing how those who would actually manipulate the gospel in their preaching talk about winning as, as if somehow that's the heart of the gospel is to become one who's in the winner's circle. This is an utter confusion of the gospel. We'll get into that even more clearly. 
But whether it's been gospel infused for you, or it's industry infused for you, or it's interpersonally infused for you, or social media infused for you, do you feel like you're in a winning or losing side right now? If you feel like you're on the losing side, it's a miserable place to be. How will you ever crawl out of all the comments that have loaded up on your Instagram page? How will you ever get free from that one stupid thing that maybe you said in a wrong moment? And there's lots of wrong moments, opportunities right now in how we speak. Or maybe you're on the winning side. Maybe you're like, huh, well, I'm doing well. It's going well financially. It's going well relationally. I'm okay with this competitive narrative. Are you? Do you really want to be on the winning side when there's so many losers? Is that how we want to live our lives? If you're in a younger stage of life, kind of late teens, 20s, even 30s, the competition narrative can be one that takes you over. And the fact of the matter is you're looking here and you're looking there and you're looking here and you're looking there and you're going, am I matching up? Am I as smart? Am I as attractive? And it'll often spoil the closest relationships that you have. It's there that you'll feel like, oh, I could be even closer, but I'm threatened by them. Oh, they're winning right now, and I'm not. It's a brutal narrative. So many of us live it. John's followers were living it. Let me mention a narrative that's underneath this competition narrative. It is a pernicious one that's in this text, I believe, although it doesn't pop out like the competition one does, and it's this. There's a subcurrent narrative going on in which we see the followers of John not trusting in their leader. It's actually a narrative that authority cannot be trusted. Again, another very strong narrative of the American soul. The one thing I love about the American way, honestly, is that we, we do hope that not everything depends upon a monarchical leader. And we, we, we do have this sense of things happening in, in communities and, and happening at grassroots. At our best, we do that type of thing. But we can also be deeply distrustful. And we have track records. Here I'm speaking of trustworthy leaders, like John the baptizer. Somebody who was not getting rich. He was not gaining fame. He was actually in it for a very specific reason, yet they've lost their trust in him. 11 months into this pandemic, none of us can underestimate the way in which this pandemic and disconnection from those who we are called to trust, from those that have been trustworthy, can somehow we begin to distrust even those that have proven their leadership in our lives. The ability to move into a paranoia or a detachment or a suspicion is profound. These followers of John have moved into suspicion. We don't trust what our teacher taught us about Jesus. We're in competition, they're thinking. And it's actually undermining the exact thing John's taught them. Look, look what John says to them. He says to them in verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm reminding you what I taught you. He won't let them undermine his authority. But more important than that for John is you can't undermine the narrative I've given you, which is the narrative of Jesus, not the narrative of competition, not the narrative of distrust. Other narratives that we see throughout the scriptures. There's others as well. John chapter four, just one page over from this. We meet a Samaritan woman. She comes from a mixed ethnic background that was not honored among the Jewish people as a Samaritan. She's had a very difficult background, and she's made a lot of decisions, likely some of them quite immoral. And she views herself as an outsider, which is not altogether irrational. There, is outs- there are outsider realities to her life. That's, a, that's the dominant narrative. When we see Jesus interacting with her, that's her dominant narrative is, I'm on the outside, everyone else is on the inside, especially you, a Jewish male. 
And Jesus doesn't deny the reality of what she's saying. There's some great truth in what she's saying. She has been on the outside, but he won't let her maintain that as her central narrative. He empathizes and he cares for her. But he goes beyond that to also say, you're not on the outside with me. I've come to save all people. He says in verse 26 of chapter 4, I who speak to you am he. You may have an outsider narrative for good reason, like the Samaritan woman. But I want to gently challenge you that doesn't get to be the predominant narrative of your life. I who speak to you and me. There's a narrative of misfortune. This is profoundly depicted if you know the works of the mid-20th century Anglican thinker and writer C.S. Lewis who wrote many things including the Chronicles of Narnia and one of his installments in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Horse and His Boy, there's a protagonist named Shasta who has had an incredibly unfortunate life. He's been abused. He's been orphaned. He's been on the run. He's really truly suffered. And he says at one point, I am the most unfortunate boy. That's his narrative, the narrative of misfortune. Nothing has really gone my way in life. And Aslan, the Christ figure, this incredible lion, encounters Shasta amidst his soliloquy of misfortune. And Aslan says, tell me your misfortune. Because he actually cares. As Jesus cared about the Samaritan woman. And Shasta lists them. After each one, and Aslan says, but when that happened, I was there. When that happened, I was there. You're not so unfortunate. Growing up, I knew somebody who had an I'm not fill-in-the-blank enough narrative. For them, it was I'm not smart enough. Every chance they had, they would interpret what was happening in their workplace or in their interpersonal dynamics with, I'm just not smart enough. Any of us have an I'm not enough narrative. My own narrative journey has been one of dealing for decades with a deep-seated narrative of rejection. It's how I thought about my life a lot. If I'm not being rejected, it's only a matter of time until someone will reject me, goes my narrative. And why not? Why wouldn't people reject me? So you don't see me like this right now, please. Just see me as a really needy sinner who's desperate for Jesus, who has a rejection narrative. That would be most helpful. That's who I am in the Lord. It's my testimony. Even a month ago, the Lord broke into that narrative. I'll never forget this prayer time I had. It's on my birthday. <laughs> In December, and the Lord broke into that narrative. It's a battle. And he introduced me yet again to his narrative, yet again. Because we must know his narrative, you all. I want you to know your narrative, but we can't stop there. John the Baptist preaches a sermon here, by the way. And this is, by the way, for those of us who are Bible lovers, this is really fun because you don't get a lot of John the Baptist sermons. Um, I cannot wait um, to stream that podcast um, in, in the kingdom where John the Baptist is preaching. It's going to be awesome. We only have a couple, and we get an extensive narrative here from him. But he, he, he teaches this kind of, here's the gospel narrative. Here's the good news narrative. The first is this narrative is a narrative of receiving, he teaches. And he said this is a narrative also um, of descending or decreasing. 
Okay, so let's look at the narrative receiving first. He gives this cryptic statement, and I hope you read it and went, I don't know what that means. Because uh, honesty when you're doing Bible work is most important. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. It's cryptic. It's kind of in a genre of sort of Semitic statements. Like, what is he saying with this? Almost a riddle. Okay, well, let's work on it a little bit. Okay, first of all, um, heaven is euphemism for God. So um, at, as a Jewish leader, you're talking about God and regarding the heavens. They're saying you can, a person cannot receive what is given them unless it is given them from heaven. What he's saying is every person is given a gift from heaven that is sensual to who they are and how they will live their lives. But this is a very personal gift given from heaven. This isn't kind of like a random Coke bottle that falls out of the heavens. Allusion to another film. This isn't like a bundle dropped from heaven. It's like, oh, what is this thing? Oh, my goodness. It's a bundle from heaven. No, 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 no. No, no. The gift is given you from heaven. It's given you from heaven. It's more like this. Jesus comes to you with a gorgeous I kind of, I think Scandinavian carving is really cool, like a gorgeous Scandinavian carved box. Fill in the blank for that. It's beautiful. He looks at you. Says your name. And he opens the box. And in that box, there may be one golden coin, there may be ten. And then he opens it, you're kind of tempted to see if anybody else is having their box open. You want to know how many coins, the coins they've got. And he says, no, 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 don't do that. Just look at your box. doesn't matter how many you have. He pulls the gold coin out, and he shows it to you. And on one side of that coin is his image. It's his face. And he flips it, and on the other side of that coin is a symbol. You actually know what the symbol is. It's, it's a symbol of a gift he's given you, a vocation or a, a spiritual gift a passion, something that he's given you, that you love. When he gives us this gift from heaven, when John says this, first and foremost, we need to be clear, he's talking about salvation, which is personal, but before we personalize it on the other side of the coin, it's first the image of Jesus. He's talking about what Jesus was teaching Nicodemus just before this section in John chapter 3, that you must be born again. What he's saying here is, first and foremost, when you receive a gift from heaven, you receive the gift of salvation. You receive the gift of being born again. You receive a gift, by the way, in that gift of a deep kingdom unity where every single person in the kingdom of God is just as poor as the other in terms of their spiritual poverty and need to be saved from the power of sin, the power of demons, the power of the world's narrative. Amen? Everyone has that. We're all deeply unified in that. The insanity that we would divide over other narratives when we know one central narrative. I'm a sinner saved by grace. My narrative of rejection, my narrative of being an outsider, my, my, my narrative of competition, it's all dust. That's what unifies us. He's saying that there. John is saying, he will give you the gift of salvation that comes from God your Father in the fullness of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Savior. Hallelujah. But on the other side of the coin, you flip it over, not only have I given you salvation, not only have I given you the gift of being born again, but I've got a life work for you to do. It's so good. You just want everybody to know this, don't you? 
You can be saved, and you can be set on a purpose that's been tailor-made by your Father in heaven for you. How do we know this is also in the text? We actually see that John is talking about his life work. Right? This is in the context. The whole argument is around John's life work. Is John's life work legit or not? Everyone's going to Jesus now. Is he losing market share? He's like, no, I'm not losing market share. This is my life work. I know what I'm about. This is about a life work being given him. It's about a life work being given to us. Augustine, the great Christian thinker, said regarding this text, I received something from heaven in order to be something. I received something from heaven in order to be something, in order to have a life work. Indeed, Jesus perhaps remembering this sermon by John the baptizer, will say with the same sentence construction to Pilate, the governor of Judea, you would have nothing. You're talking with me, those of you who know your Bible? We're not giving you from heaven about his vocation, about his work, about the fact that God gives a life work. Pilate was not following through judiciously on his life work at that point. What have you been given, brothers and sisters? I want you to know your other narrative, but I want you to know his narrative, his salvation narrative, and his setting you on a life gospel purpose narrative. What have you been given? And to whom have you been sent? That's good work to do in this winter time. That's good prayer work. That's good discussion work. How do you know what that is? Well, accept the gifts that have been given you. Identify spiritual gifts, personality gifts. Let it be a broader conversation Passions that you have, identify what those things are. How do you identify those? Well, it can help to identify what you don't have. You should start that way. We're often more aware of what we're not so good at. Well, good, identify those things. There's, there's no danger in that for a Christian. We identify what we've not been given. We accept what we've not been given. We accept what we're not very good at. And we say, okay, Lord, in the midst of that, then what have you chosen to give me? If you're younger in that 20s, 30s section, one reason why it's so important that we, we deconstruct the narrative of distrusting authority is one of the key ways you discover that other side of the coin and the symbol are through your spiritual moms and dads, your, and maybe your mom and dad, your spiritual aunties and uncles. Actually, one of the ways you get clear about your life purpose and your calling is they help you do that. That's one of their vocations in the church. That's what we do for one another. If you're older... And the older set of it, it's never too late for us to discover our gifts. Never too late. And it's never too late for us to continue white, hot passion on our calling, which includes helping our next generation get clear about how to make their contribution. I just, a, a person that I think of who's role modeled accepting their gifts and investing them in the kingdom is Ann Kessler, whom I'm guessing most of you do not know but who makes our diocese run. She makes our Mother Church Cathedral run. She's the executive director of Operation for Resurrection. She's never preached a sermon that I know of, right? She's never given a vision cast. But she's known her gifts, and she's thrown them in to the work of the kingdom of God. Ann Kessler. <laughs> this narrative of acceptance leads all to this narrative of decreasing that John teaches into. He gives us, if you know the Bible, he gives us a very well-known sentence, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now, if you come from a Christian background, maybe a Christian high school or um, youth group, Christian youth group, it's possible you had a t-shirt one time that had that verse on the back of the t-shirt. It's just possible, which is fine. It's a good verse put on the back of a t-shirt. 
I'd like to do this right now. I'd take it off the back and put it right here. <laughs> okay, right here. Sorry, Mike. Let's, let's take this teaching on decreasing deep within our hearts. You can't get the whole context on the back of the T-shirt, but it's actually an important context. What's the context in your Bible? It's, it's a wedding. Ooh, okay, whenever you see wedding context, whenever you see wedding context, you go, okay, hold on here a second. Jackpot. It's Bible time, right? John chapter 2, wedding at Cana. That's not just like, oh, Jesus happened to go to a wedding. No, God, no. It's about a wedding. Why is the wedding so important? How does the Bible begin? Adam and Eve get married? Hmm. How's the Bible end? Humanity that have chosen God and God, if you will, getting married, the marriage feast of the Lamb, the wedding feast that will culminate in everything. John, John the baptizer is saying it's all about a wedding. It's all about a marriage feast. That's the great narrative of the gospel, is that God loves humanity so much that through his son, Jesus Christ, he wants to be in the deepest communion with them. He wants to be absolutely close with them. That's such a dominant narrative that that earthly marriage is only reflecting that reality of marriage and wedding. And John is saying, that's the big narrative. And you go, wait a second here. I thought that wasn't really clear until Paul taught on that in Ephesians chapter 5. No, 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 no. Hosea chapter 2 in the Hebrew scriptures were taught that Israel is a bride. Hosea 2. And that God is the bridegroom. John's just building on this. And then Paul understands that the church also receives this gift of the identity of bride. And that Jesus is bridegroom. And who are we? You're tracking, right? We're best men and maids of honor. And by the way, that had a whole lot more to do with just handing the ring over at the moment or holding, holding the bride's flowers, right? I mean, if you were a best man, bridegroom, a, a, a maid of honor in those days, you were arranging, you were serving, you were helping setting everything up, making sure that the wine didn't run out. You're doing all that kind of hard work. You're, you're moving all around, making sure that the wedding is awesome and that when the focus comes, it's all on the bridegroom and the bride. And that's our work. That's, that's what those gifts are given to you for. Is you're working around going, I want everyone invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. I want to make sure that I can invite this person and that person. I just want to serve them. I, I just want to decrease that the, the bridegroom might increase. I want to be assisting. Because I want Jesus to increase. I want Jesus to increase. But how does Jesus increase, family of God? He decreases. He becomes an infant, the second person of the Trinity. He who has never not been, he who has always been, becomes an infant with all the limitations of an infant. He lives a life with human limitations, without sin, but fully limited as a human person on this earth. He decreases to the point of execution on the holy cross where he says, I give up my life for the sake of the world, the ultimate decrease. So if you want to enter in with Jesus, and you want to decrease, he's already gotten there before you. So that your decrease joins him in his decrease. You suffer as he suffers. You go through trials as he goes through his trials. You accept the battle of the narratives. You take all the hits that will come from choosing the gospel narrative. But as you decrease, so he will increase. And as he increases, so will you increase. You are buried with Christ in his death. And you are raised with Christ to new life and increase. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it the gospel amazing? Oh, John's sermon. He must increase. Who will decrease? Therefore, we must decrease. Which will be our increase? 
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.